Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Ladies and gentlemen, put down your sonic screwdrivers and your photon phases. It's time for another episode of Tech Talk with the guru of the good news, Matthew Dickerson. Welcome back, Matt. It's been another exciting week, particularly with the launch of the first space tourism venture. But more of that later. How have you been? Yeah, yeah, good. And I'm glad you call it good news because I do think it is all good news. It mightn't be something we see down the track. It might be stuff that's just a bit of mind thoughts for people and doesn't actually come to fruition. But it is all good news, all this technology yeah, stuff. And I like to think it's a start of something. You know, Each one of these little Bortons is the, the start or maybe the next step in something else that's good that's about to come along too. Yeah, yeah You never yeah. know where things lead to. I love having meetings with people when you're sitting around and everyone's throwing in their ideas. And it starts off with some idea and you think, well, that's no good. But then someone else builds on that and builds on that. And the old saying about you can see further because you're standing on the shoulders of giants. And this is, I think, what happens with some of these stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure, yeah. So this week I've actually seen a little bit of... COVID news around our service New South Wales app. We know in New South Wales at the moment, you go anywhere, basically. You go in a retail outlet. We're all used to it. Hospital. We're all doing it well, all you'd the think time, so, four wouldn't or five you? times a day. But it's still amazing. We're still seeing a lot of my staff are still helping out a lot of people just becoming accustomed to the Service New South Wales app, scanning QR codes. I've seen some examples where people have got hundreds of photos of QR codes on their mobile phone. <laughs> of course, and it makes sense. Yeah. Someone said... You point your camera at that QR code. And what does that mean? You point your camera (laughs) for one reason only. Exactly right. What else would you possibly use your camera for but taking a photo? And you can reminisce later on about all your favourite QR codes from the past, (laughs) you know, week or fortnight or whatever. Oh, look at this one. Look at the cute little curves on this one. But that's the the thing. You've got some people who still are struggling with that whole concept. I think most people are getting the hang of it now, but it does make it hard to move around in society without having a handle on QR code. So it's still interesting how many people are still coming to grips with that whole concept of scanning that in, putting their details in. And some of these people are brand new to smartphones. They've had their trusty flip phone or their trusty little phone they tuck away in the bottom of their handbag all those years. And so getting to a smartphone concept is pretty hard, but then trying to scan QR codes and making sense yeah. of that, that can be quite difficult now, as well. I've got a bit of a question to ask about QR codes as well. Uh, is there a ceiling to how many QR codes you can actually have? I mean, there's obviously a large number, but um, there's a large number of people all over the world using these QR codes, I'm going to assume as well. <laughs> I don't think so. It's not something I've really thought about, but if I just do the maths very quickly, yeah, okay. I mean, a barcode is pretty easy because let's say you've got 13 digits in a barcode, it can only have numeric characters in a barcode so you've got say 10 to the power of 13 is the maximum number of barcodes that you could have qr codes are a bit better you've got 4296 possible characters in alphanumeric mode for a qr code and when you've got the letters of the alphabet and the numbers and some other characters let's say 45 for example 45 different characters possible then the number of total permutations available for a QR code would be 45 to the power of 4,296, which is, just let me convert that to the base 10, a big number. So (laughs) no, I don't think we're going to run out for a long time. Keeping in mind that it's not like a barcode which has a unique registration. For example, Wrigley's Juicy Fruit Chewing Cum, the first commercial product to be made with a barcode and scanned with a barcode. 
that's unique to that particular product. So barcodes are registered with products that they're put on. With QR codes, you can just go and create a QR code. You can go to a QR code generator website, create a QR code. Now, I can create a QR code that says, listen to Tech Talk. Someone else can create another QR code somewhere else and say, listen to Tech Talk. So you can have the same QR codes generated. But again, different QR codes? No, we've got a lot of those available. And then we can just make our QR codes bigger. That's uh, right, And, yeah. and um, we'll be done. Yeah. All right, well, it's a fair sort of a lineup you've got for us today, mate. People, prepare to get schooled on a bold new direction in food production. I'm talking lab meat, people. And that's something different to get your laughing gear around. Uh, Harley Davidson is broadening its horizons with something uh, that's going to really shake the tree. And if you've been looking to get just a little something for simply just going to the toilet, then we've got some good news for you. But let's get this show on the road with our first story. Branson is officially the world's first space tourist. Love him or hate him, he started something big and gotten tongues talking. Tell us about that, Matt. And I do actually think it's fair that Branson won the space race. This has been a race that we thought Jeff Bezos was going to win because he made the announcement on the 20th of July. He was going to go up there and be the first of the billionaires into space. Elon Musk has been there and thereabouts, but not really at the point where he's ready to go into space. But Branson did start this back in 2004. He had the vision. Yeah. He said... I'm going to go into space. I'm going to take tourists into space. And in 2004, people said, yeah, yeah, sure, good on you, whatever. And then he took a fair few years. As we've talked about in the past, they had a bit of an incident back in 2014. Yeah, and they were set to, to open up in 2015 and launch their first in 2015. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And of course, they had an accident. Someone died. That poured cold water on the whole concept. And I think at some stage there, Branson probably said, you know what? I'm just not going to do it. It's Mm. too hard to do. There's so much engineering involved. It's so much expense. I'm going to shelve the idea. But then, of course, nothing like competition. Competition really breeds innovation. So along came Bezos, along came Musk. They did a few things. And then when Bezos made the announcement, I think that really fired up Branson. And we talked about it last week that Virgin Galactic was the first of the companies to get FAA approval. And we may mention the fact fact that that was to get through commercial airspace, not to actually approve the safety of the Not to say anything was safe at all. It's just that you can get through the commercial airspace. That's right. Now, so he's done it. He's gone up. Now, his concept's a little bit different to Blue Origin, which is Jeff Bezos's. With Virgin Galactic, you actually hang off another plane, a specially built plane. You hang a small aircraft off that. You go up to a certain height. That gets released from that major or the larger plane, and then you go from there and take off up into space. The whole flight, taking off attached to the larger aircraft, up to a certain level, ejected off, up into space, come back down and land, the whole flight was less than an hour. Mm. Now, people are going to be paying... Fairly expensive, yeah. That's right. They're going to be paying <laughs> quarter of a million, half a million dollars, so it's going to be a fairly expensive one hour of their time. And there's still the debate, and this is where maybe we'll see a bit more to play out here, there's still the debate... Did he actually go into space? Yeah, right. So it's about a height thing. And who draws the line at where space starts? Well, the US has said 80 kilometres. We define 80 kilometres, you're in space, happy days. Some experts say, mm, 80 kilometres, not quite. How about 100 kilometres? So Virgin Galactic went to 80 kilometres or went above 80 kilometres, so Branson's gone to space. But maybe if Bezos or Musk go above 100 kilometres, they'll say, nah, <laughs> Branson, he was toying. He was just playing around the edges there. We actually were the first ones to go into space. Anyway, you cut it. I think it's pretty exciting for people. And you saw some of the vision, I'm sure, where mm. people were up there. They were floating around for a good five minutes or so in that weightless environment. And to me, the definition is all about 
Do I feel weightless? Can I spin around in the air and not kind of hit my head on the ground? That sounds like a pretty cool concept. You can do that at 80 kilometres. And I think um, Bezos is going up in a rocket, so they launch a rocket from the ground, don't they? Is that right? He's got the old-fashioned concept where you strap yourself on the top of a a whole bunch of fuel (laughs) and some engines at the bottom and then you just blast off. Wave your cowboy hat in the air as you tear off. Yeah, and landing that rocket now too, so that's the other thing as well. Yeah. 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 Whereas the Virgin Galactic plane lands like a traditional plane. It Mm. lands on a runway Mm. and then they go and reuse it again a la Space Shuttle. Good luck to Branson. He's won the race. There is some potential for good old-fashioned average Joe Blows, i.e. you and me, to actually go into space with Virgin Galactic. If we don't have that spare quarter of a million dollars, we can actually make donations. They've got a company called Omars, and you can make donations there, and then some people that have made donations will be drawn as a random draw to actually go and have a, a tour around the spaceport with Richard and then go up for a little space flight as well. Sounds pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, there's been a lot of talk as well on social media about wasting money and all that sort of stuff. I've got to say, I think it's it's an excellent enterprise and it's just, uh, we don't know what's going to come of this. Uh, and, and the more people that get an opportunity to experience this sort of thing, the more heads we've got generating ideas about where the next step goes. And this is the stuff about building futures. I, I really, I'm excited by it. I think there's a few things in that. One is that you're right, you never know what's going to happen out of something else that someone else develops. People go up in space, they come up with ideas, they might want to do scientific research, they might find faster ways to fly from country to country. But at the same time, Richard Branson has made some money. Mm. Why do I have the audacity or the hide to say to Richard, Richard, you've made your money, but I'm going to tell you how to spend it. it. So if he wants to spend it blasting off into the sky and take some people on some space tourism, then good luck to him, I say. Mm. Absolutely. Moving on to something else that's a little bit controversial. You know we're getting ready to go to Mars when people are looking for ways to get the most out of their poop. Excuse me for any distaste here, but folks, literally, sure, we know about chook poo and horse manure makes for great fertiliser, but now we're looking to repurpose people poop, and it's getting real leverage in South Korea. But we're not looking to use it for fertiliser per se, are we? No, we're not using it for fertiliser. We're using it for power. This is pretty exciting. There's a university in South Korea. You can go to a toilet, only one toilet at this stage, in that particular building at this university, and you'll just go to the toilet as normal. Make a deposit, exactly right. And that goes off somewhere. You'd have to think about it. But what you do know is that some of your feces will be used to boil water in that building, to power part of that building. It'll be used to generate power. About half a kilogram a day you'll generate in your body, the average human. And that will be turned into approximately 50 litres of methane gas. That methane gas can then be burnt and then used for various things, i.e. power production, boiling water, etc. But it gets better than that. Some of the students were a little bit squirmish about doing this. They just felt a little bit uncomfortable. So what do you do when you've got university students? You buy them off because most university students (laughs) are broke. They've got their price. That's right. That's not very much. It's not very cheap. (laughs) Uh, Very expensive. That's right. In this case, (laughs) they created an entire digital currency just for this purpose. They called it Jigul, which in Korean is honey. So I'm not quite sure of the link there. I just want to leave that Uh. alone if that's all right. (laughs) And so when you go to the toilet, when you make a deposit, you generate 10 Jigul for your deposit. Now you can go to the cafe in this particular building and you can buy a coffee, you can buy fruit, you can buy books at this particular cafe 
using your digital currency. What I love about that, well, it's the circle of life. You then get your G-Ghoul, you go back and you buy your fruit, for example, at the cafe, your fruit goes into your body, that generates some more feces, you go back to the toilet and then you generate more G-Ghoul, it just goes on forever. There we go, it's a self-perpetuating system. Perfect. Yeah, right. (laughs) So I really like the idea, and one of the quotes from one of the students there, he said that, he even thinks about and talks about feces during mealtime now because he's so excited about what he's going to be able to buy with his G-Ghoul when he makes his deposit. <laughs> but if, if we look at this in a bigger picture, again, this yeah. is a very small experiment where it's working and it's being put to some good. But think about a skyscraper. Think about a skyscraper that might have thousands of people in it. Imagine if every toilet in that skyscraper had a deposit process where you extracted the feces out, mm. went down into the basement and you had some machine that was kept away from everyone else so the odours weren't coming through and it was generating power. We've talked about it before, maybe up to 13% of power is lost in transmission from where it's generated mm. to where it's used. The more you can actually produce the power where you want to use it, the better you are, a more efficient system you've got. So suddenly you can have all these people in a building, maybe not using the G-Girl, for example, but maybe just having deposits going into that building and then use that power in that particular building. I'm not sure exactly how much, what percentage of power you generate for that building. I can't imagine it would be a huge percentage, but even if you generated 10% of that. Some sort of subsidy, yeah. I didn't think that I was good for half a kilowatt hour of electricity per day <laughs> if, if I had my feces extracted and used in some sort of power generation. Yeah. So having an entire building doing that, I think there's some merit in that. This could be the way of the future. I always say it, folks, watch this space for future developments in that line. Just don't smell this space. Yeah. <laughs> Just watch only. Oh, it's all, all sealed system, surely, surely, surely. Hopefully. Here's one for the parents who've had it up to here with trying to get their kids off screens from gaming software companies of all places. This is their facial recognition, I understand. Correct. In China, it's interesting, I didn't actually realise this till I did the research for this story, it's illegal. It's not just a recommendation, it's not just something that they suggest that people don't do, it's actually illegal for minors, anyone under the age of 18, to play on a game between 10pm and 8am. Yeah, so against the law. Against the law. Yeah, right. And in Imagine China, you don't break that. the law, you tend to stay <laughs> compliant with the yeah, law. Yeah, right. And it's also illegal to play, again, a minor, for more than 90 minutes a day during weekdays. On weekends, knock themselves out, go for it. But during the week, it was obviously getting to be such a bad problem that kids were suffering, their schoolwork was obviously suffering. So the idea here was that you had your account, you registered your account in your name, Billy Bloggs, and you go and play the game. And then, sorry, you're under 18, you'll stop or access will stop for you at 10 p.m. So kids then started to become creative, yeah, as that, kids do. That, yeah, so you're only going to, that's only going to affect you if you register as yourself, Correct. if you're a kid. That's right. So kids registered as their parents. Hey, mum and dad, I'll show you this cool new game. Oh, I'll just type in your details for this. And, of course, they were then able to play. Parents finally got onto this, and then they noticed a surge in 80 and 90 year olds playing some of the big <laughs> games from Tencent. We're talking about League of Legends. We're talking about Fortnite. So suddenly these games are being inundated with Chinese people in their 80s and 90s. And then what they realised was kids were going and visiting their grandparents. Hey, Granny, look at this cool new game I've yeah. got. Let me show you how it all works. Uh, just give me your driver's licence there and I'll just get you set up and registered on this game. So now we've gone a step further where if you're playing the game after 10pm or even if you're playing the game for a certain amount of time during the day, it will come up and ask you to basically put your face in front of the game that you're playing to make sure that it really is you who's registered and playing the game. So yeah. if you've got an 80-year-old registered... 
and up comes the facial image of someone that's 16, the game says, sorry, we don't think you've found the fountain of youth over there. <laughs> we think that you're actually a minor playing under your grandparents' account, so you've been blocked. That's this is going to happen clever. more and more with more gaming companies, I feel, in China in particular, but I think parents across the world, because it's so hard for parents, yeah, they turn to their... Market, well, it? it is. They turn to their kids to find out how to get the technology working, how to use the technology. So having parents trying enforcing rules around games for kids mm. is very difficult. And it was only last night I was sitting there just going through some screen time stats with one of my kids and just saying, I think you're on the phone too much. Let's look at your screen time stats. I had to get the phone off her before she could actually wipe her screen time stats. And so that's <laughs> what will happen with kids. They'll make sure that they've got ways around it. And mm. obviously you need to make sure you're a bit tech savvy as a parent. But in this scenario, we're leaving up to the gaming companies, maybe not in their best interest to stop kids playing games. But I think if the law says this is how it's got to be done, then they will comply with that. Well, I did think it was a really interesting development that it was the gaming companies that were actually doing it. What's their way around that too to make more money? Is that developing trust so that uh, perhaps parents are more willing to have their kids buy those games than another competitor's games? I don't know. It might be. Or it might just be that the Chinese government said, you will do this, and Tencent said, okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> when Chinese governments talk, people tend to listen a little bit. So the cyber attacks are continuing uh, around the world and here in Australia as well. We know uh, we're not safe from those. Uh, the New South Wales government was under attack with the Department of Education this time hit by a cyber attack as teachers prepared for online classes. I guess we need a vaccine for cyber attacks now. That'd be good if we had some sort of vaccine, wouldn't it? It wouldn't be that hard to convince people to get injected with it. But the cyber attackers, we've talked about it before, James, the cyber attackers will go out and they will see where there's a weak spot, they'll see where there's someone they can target and they'll target them and they've said, we're not trying to make a difference in the world. We just want to make money. Simple mm. as that. We've seen US pipelines attacked. We've seen meat producers in the US attacked. They're not trying to really make a difference in terms of the overall process of a government. They're just trying to make that money. Now, in Australia, when some new lockdowns occurred for students, and this is only very recent, where suddenly students in greater Sydney areas were not allowed to go back to school, teachers had to very quickly work out some online delivery of those classes. So having access to their emails, having access to their computer systems was absolutely vital. So suddenly they were vulnerable and that's when cyber attackers said, hello, let's go and attack the New South Wales Department yeah, of Education. Right. And it's just, I don't know what rewards you could get out of that other than just disrupt the, um, the system. Uh, I suspect money, we haven't seen any evidence here that they've demanded a ransom, but we may not have been told about that either. We've seen the New South Wales government actually suffer from some cyber attacks before. Service New South Wales had some cyber attacks where information was leaked online. So they're not immune completely to attacks. And again, if you said to the Department of Education, all your teachers can't access online resources, all those students that need to be educated remotely now mm. can no longer be, by the way, we'd just like a few million dollars thanks to keep us quiet and make us go away. Who knows? The government may well have paid that money. Again, I've got no evidence to say there was any demand, but I suspect they just saw that he was a department. He was an organisation that was vulnerable. They need their computer systems more than ever right now. Let's go and attack. Or it could have just been a naughty year nine student. <laughs> 15-year-old with a bit of loose bit of a loose end. <laughs> bit of time on his hands. Time on his hands. Thought, I wonder what is going to happen if I do this. Uh, <laughs> I hadn't thought about that, but you're quite right. It might be a possibility. Oh, year nine. My son's year nine, so uh, we'll, we'll move on. This one's a real favourite of mine. I've got a lot I'd like to talk about here, Matt, but I'm going to let you tell us about this revolution of real meat that's never actually been in an animal. It's, it's all about lab meat. Well, I actually thank you for this one. I knew there was a little bit of 
action happening in this around the world, but I hadn't actually gone into it in detail. And you mentioned it to me last week that this is something you were quite interested in. So I went and did the research. My favourite part of the research was a quote I found from Sir Winston Churchill. Now, this was before he became Prime Minister, nine years before he became Prime Minister. Yeah, right. He was asked to write an article called 50 Years Hence, and it was basically his vision of the future in 50 years' time. And he now, got his Nostradamus going there, and he, he just... Did. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah, and I won't read the entire 4,000-word article to you, <laughs> but I will read Save one... That. Yeah, thank you. One sentence I'll read to you. He said... We shall escape the absurdity of growing a whole chicken in order to eat the breast or wing by growing these parts separately under a suitable medium. Wow. Imagine wow. in yeah. 1931 thinking that... To have thought about that. Yeah. yeah I yeah. don't think people in 1931 were thinking about just growing a wing or a breast of a chicken. They were thinking about how do we grow more chooks so yeah. we can get eggs and actually kill them to eat them. Well, what if you could grow your wings without the bones in them? I always hate that little tidbit <laughs> that you've got to get your teeth around. So, yeah. It's a good enough reason not to eat the wings. I just go straight <laughs> for the breast. But here is a situation where effectively we are doing that now. It has been going for a little while and the first commercial version of this was sold in a restaurant in Singapore at the end of last year. So people in that restaurant could buy a meat patty that was grown in a laboratory, not on an animal. And I think that's cool. <laughs> it's pretty amazing, isn't it? <laughs> there are a lot of people out there who are going to go, oh, no, I can't think of anything worse. But this is just, this is meat. It's not something that's artificial. It's been made with real animal cells, like so real muscle cells. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this is, well, it's not going to replace... Uh, our, our traditional farming, but it's, it's going to certainly supplement it. It's going to augment it, definitely right. And the thing here is, the, the big news at the moment is, sure, end of last year it was being sold in restaurants, but in very small quantities. In Israel, we've now got the first factory, it's just opened up, the first factory in the world that's specifically dedicated to growing meat in the laboratory. So they're now getting to the stage where we're looking at commercial quantities. And they're not quite commercial yet. At the moment, it's capable of producing 500 kilograms a day of cultured meat. That sounds like it's a lot. It sounds like a lot. To put it in perspective, Aussies consume 7,800 tonnes of meat <laughs> per day. So 500 <laughs> kilograms okay. is a reasonable right. amount. <laughs> but in comparison to what we eat, but again, this is the first laboratory. And that's one factory. One factory. They're only small at this stage because they're still learning how to get up to higher quantities. That's stage one. I imagine they've got many stages planned. The interesting part is that they can grow the meat 20 times faster than you would grow on a normal animal, and they generate 80% fewer greenhouse gases. Good for the environment, good for producing more meat. Now, we kind of think, oh, big deal. We can go and buy a steak from our supermarket. It's no big hassle from our perspective. But we are very lucky in Australia, if you like meat, that is. We consume about 110 kilos of meat per year across the entire nation. Every person in this country, on average, consumes about 110 kilograms. That's two and a half times the worldwide average. So most places around the world don't have anywhere near the level of access to meat that we do. Now, for some people, they don't care about that, but might be vegetarians or vegans, but there's 90% of people in Australia who do eat meat. Again, think about this around the world. Think about places that you can't get meat. Think about places where you just don't have the land mass to be able to have sheep or cattle roaming around and then saying, let's put a factory in. Mm. And exactly as you said, you take meat, you take stem cells from an animal, the animal stays alive. The animal's not killed in this process. Mm. And they're fed the right medium, exactly as Winston Churchill said, 
and then that grows muscle fibre. We're also not wasting resources as well. Yeah, so the, the water that you're using is going into the product without any other wastage there. You're using the right mix of protein and carbohydrate and the right materials in order to make healthy meat. And from that, you're able to to get yourself, you harvest the meat without having to worry about any other production because the meat is sitting there within the Petri dish ready to go. Exactly right. Now, before we get every farmer ringing in and abusing us and telling us that we're terrible, we're going to destroy their livelihood, exactly as you said, I don't think this is going to be something that completely replaces it. But there are times when we have droughts in this country. Oh, and long droughts. Long droughts. So there are times when maybe having that ability to have additional meat production, probably see it more relevant in countries around the world that just don't have the Mm. meat production that we have. It probably doesn't taste the same. I haven't actually tried it yet. But it's not the same fibres of muscle because that muscle hasn't been worked while that animal's been walking around the paddocks. It looks more like mincemeat, like a hamburger patty type Mm. thing. So it's more that sort of structure. But who knows, James? what's wrong with getting some electricity injected across this while it's growing in a Petri dish? That's right, just getting a potential different across it and and changing that um, to make it flex. And uh, next thing you know, you've got muscle fibre. Yeah. Now, the only downside, which might be an upside, depending which way you look at it, is the meat is incredibly healthy. It's got all the same protein, all the nutrients that normal meat would have. It doesn't have the fat content, which I think is great. There are some people who love the fat content. Yeah, I've got to throw up my hand there. I'm sorry, Matt. Um, and you can seed it with um, fat tissue as well, fat Correct. cells. Yeah. yeah, you can create Let's face it, whatever we eat, it's just made up of atoms. Mm. If we can produce the same atoms in the same structure, then you've got the same thing. So if you want fat in your meat, then you can produce that in the factory. At the moment, they're not. They're making it incredibly healthy meat. Mm. So it's a really interesting thing. But I have got a major problem with it, one part of it. And this is a bit of an issue about labels. We know we've got <laughs> a few different labels out there at the moment. We know we've got vegan and vegetarians. We know we've got pescatarians, flexitarians, politarians, fruitarians, climatarians, Reductarians. That's not enough names. Surely there's a longer list than that. My goodness, that's a long list of names, I've got to say. I need (laughs) now a new Aryan that will cover someone that eats lab-produced meat. I don't know what it is. Let's put our minds to it. And only lab-produced meat. And only lab-produced meat, obviously. (laughs) That would be the only one. And then, see, flexitarian I like, because flexitarian sounds like you're flexible. You'll just eat whatever's put in front of you. So I like the idea of flexitarian. But there are a lot of Aryans there. Maybe one of our listeners could send in their idea of what the Aryan name would be for someone who eats lab-produced meat only. And here's a novel idea that's come right out of a script from the goodies. I've got to say, this story I love as well. So we're changing tack completely here. This is a pollution eating car. And I've got to say that it's designed, I'll confess, I just it sounds hilarious. But anyway, tell us more about that, Matt. Thomas Heatherwick is probably famous for designing the Google headquarters in California and London. And then he was given an interesting job of designing some of the UK buses. And they look pretty groovy. And then someone said, well, you've done buses, why don't you do a car? And he said, well, we don't do cars at our company, we do buildings mainly. So, well, that's exactly why we want you. We want you to reimagine the car. And so he came up with a couple of really novel concepts. It was an electric car, as you can imagine, any modern car, anyone that's going to design a modern car is going to make it electric or hydrogen. So it was an electric car. And he said, there's a lot of pollution put out by cars around the world. EVs can be part of the solution to that pollution problem that we have because they're not going to produce that same pollution. But hold on, 
what about if the cars could eat the pollution? And I think that's where you've got that image, haven't you, of the goodies. <laughs> you've got this car going along munching yeah, away. Yeah, going munching. But, but not only that, it's, it's what's inside the car as well. You've got to tell us about that as well. Sure. Well, I'll do the pollution first. So what it will do, because you don't need a normal grill on an electric car, you don't need a radio, you don't need air flowing through that radiator to cool the car, you can do whatever you want with the front of it. Most EVs choose to basically have nothing at the front. They don't need that airflow. But in this particular car, they've got airflow at the front, and then you've got some HEPA filters as the air flows through. It filters out pollutants in the air. So not only is this car not producing pollution, not contributing to the pollution in the world, it's actually removing it from the world. Now, one car takes about a tennis ball size of pollution out of the air. Big deal. You go, well, what a waste of time. That's one car. Imagine a million cars like this and the amount of pollution they would remove from the air. So I think that's quite novel. But then the second thing he did was he said, I've done some research. And 10% of the time, a car is actually being utilised. 90% of the time, a car is sitting there and it's using up space. It's an incredible number of resources are put into producing that car. So let's reimagine the inside of that car. So he imagined the inside of a car as office space and bed space. Now, I must admit... And that's where Graham Garden comes in <laughs> with his leather patches on his jacket and he has this great idea about how he's going to redesign this car so you can go to sleep in it and you can have your office space. I'd be concerned, James, if you ring me up one day and said, Matt, I just want to have a meeting with you. I'll just drive out the front of your place, pop out into my car and we'll have our meeting in there. And I'm thinking, is James doing a drug deal with me or has he got some money he wants me to launder it? It sounds like something a bit shady, doesn't it, when you're going to have a meeting in a car with someone. The chairs all turn around so you can have the four chairs or seats face each other. You've got a table in the middle, a bit like, say, on a train where you can turn seats around and have a little table. So that all comes part of the actual car and then that all folds together and it turns into a bed. Now, I'd be more worried if you said, let's have a meeting in the car and I turned up and it was set up as a bed when I turned up for that meeting and you, <laughs> then you told me some story about you hadn't reconfigured it from last <laughs> night yet. Oh, how embarrassing. Yes, <laughs> right. right. But again, there's some logic there. You've got that car sitting in your garage overnight You've got homeless people out there. What about if you just left your car parked in the supermarket car park and said, here you go, anyone wants to use it, a dollar a night, five dollars a night, I'll give it to you for free. Someone can come Mm. along and use my car to sleep in and then tomorrow morning I'll get my car and drive to where I've got to go to. Or imagine redesigning the house well, you don't need as much space in your bedroom because you don't need the bed. You just go, oh, I'm off to bed. Sleep in the garage. Yeah, go and sleep in the garage. I'm off to bed now. See ya. <laughs> and you jump into the bed in the car. Now, I don't see this taking off, I must admit. This is, um, well, at least it's got a couple of generations to go before it really does take off. Yeah, like with most of the goodies ideas, they didn't take off. They, they, were, they were novel. They were interesting. They were good for a half an hour sitcom, but they weren't much good for anything else. I don't see this taking off, but it's about thinking about things in a different way, and I love mm. that idea. Yeah, reframing things, yeah, for sure. Love them or hate them, folks, Harley-Davidson's have divided bikers and non-bikers alike for a long time. They're very loud. They, they've got that distinctive throaty guttural rev. It's, it's sweet music for some, but it's a wincing menace for others. Well, Harley fans are set to divide themselves right down the middle yet again as they move into the future with, wait for it, an electric model. Tell us about this highly controversial move now, Matt. 
Well, it is a bit like the discussions we've had before with, say, the Hummer or the F-150. They're vehicles that you associate with a big throbbing engine. And I've ridden Harleys. I've never owned a Harley, but I've ridden Harleys. You've got normally a V-twin is what I've ridden in the, in the Harleys, and you've got that beautiful sound, and it's that real Yeah, that rumble that goes all through every fibre in your body. <laughs> That's yeah, right, yeah. yeah. So not like those little Japanese ones with the nice smooth four-cylinder engines. <laughs> But again, that's what people love about Harleys and the design of them. And they sometimes seem a bit raw and basic, but they realise there's a different market there. They have actually tried a previous electric motorbike and it wasn't great. Mm. And they saw that they'd marketed it incorrectly. So they've now come up with what they're calling Livewire 1. So they're calling it number one, even though really the other one was there before it, but they didn't they're really want to talk about that. Happened. Don't mention that one. Yeah, okay. Livewire One is based around the whole idea that they've come up with a new brand name. So this spin-off brand is called Livewire. This is called Livewire One. And the interesting part is when I saw the CEO interviewed about this, he was asked about some of those traditional Harley owners. And he made the point that this is not for traditional Harley owners. He believes there's a whole new market out there for motorbikes, for electric motorbikes, and they might want the idea that it's been built by Harley, but they're not the traditional people who would ride a Harley. They'll keep producing their petrol engine motorbikes for a while to come yet, but they believe there's a whole new market out there mm. they can attack. Now, it's a bit cheaper. Their first one they came out with was about thirty grand. This has come down to about $20,000, especially after some tax rebates in America, so you'll get it under $20,000. It's only got about 233-kilometre range, so it's not something you would jump on and ride from Sydney to Perth. It's something you would normally use for a daily commute, some short rides. It's mm. just a, a fun motorcycle to ride. And again, with everything electric, all that torque's available from zero. So the acceleration time from this is incredible. So if you want to leave someone at the traffic lights, this is the <laughs> machine to be on. And it also handles fantastically because, again, the batteries, like in electric vehicles, the batteries are down low. So the centre of gravity is very low. It handles absolutely magnificently. I see that they've got a, a market there. Zero motorcycles are going quite well. They've got models that start at about $10,000 and go up from there. So they've got a bit to go from a price perspective, but I think Harley's got a good enough name that they can charge a bit of a premium for that. Mm. The world's changing. When we see Hummers come out with EVs, when we see F-150s in EVs, when we see Harley create an entire brand for EV, the world is changing, changing, James. Easy rider, eat your heart out. Mm. My question is, does it come in a big chopper model with a big handlebars and the big long uh, front forks there. Well, it would have to, wouldn't it? Surely, <laughs> if it's going to be a Harley, it can't look like a normal motorcycle. Tries it's got to look like model. a Harley. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Global ecology and agriculture is on tender hooks at the moment for a number of reasons, but perhaps the biggest one is, is the current troubling bee shortage. Uh, with overuse of pesticides and introduction of invasive species, bee populations around the world have been decimated. And unfortunately, they provide a crucial step in the pollination and hence reproduction of an enormous number of plant species. But some clever engineers have come to the rescue here, Matt. They have, and we have talked about that before, and we've heard about it in the news for years. Bee swarms are declining in population around the world, and they are absolutely critical for our plant life. If we're going to have pollination of various plants, some of them absolutely positively need bees, and some of them need particular types of bees, not any old bee, mm. tomatoes in particular. Tomatoes don't rely on bees landing on one tomato plant and going to another tomato plant. Tomato plants rely on the more powerful wing action of a bumblebee 
rather than the softer action of a honeybee. So what, that bumble what to shake the flower. Yeah, right. That's, okay, that's exactly it. it. It needs to shake the pollen out of the tomato plant and let it move on. Now, bumblebees are a bit of a problem in Australia. We've got some biosecurity laws, and bumblebees are a bit bullies, so they go and yeah. beat up on some of our honeybees. So for a while now, we've been using humans with ready for it vibrating wands. I haven't seen a vibrating <laughs> wand. I'd be a bit worried if but someone came and said, can you have a go at my vibrating wand? Yeah, okay. So they use vibrating wands in tomato greenhouses to go along and shake the pollen out of tomato plants so that that pollination can occur. Well, now we've got robots that do it. And robots, not only are they good at shaking it and shaking it just the right amount, they actually use blasts of air to shake it, but they're using AI, they're using deep learning to make sure they know how hard to shake some of those particular flowers and they know flowers that are ready to be shaken. So they're better than humans because they're a bit clever at learning those things. They're better at humans because they don't have lunch breaks or sit around the water cooler and gossip about what was on the TV <laughs> last night and they keep going. So we'll see greenhouses, already we're seeing it now in Australia and in America we're seeing it because there were some concerns about some virus spreading a from some bumblebees, so they needed to stop some of the bumblebees being used. All oh, right. So we're Cut seeing some of these equation. robots used already in plants, in greenhouses, in tomato greenhouses. We're seeing the same sort of thing happen with blueberries, with almonds. We will see maybe if the bee populations decline to the level that it is critical for our plant life, we will see robots coming to the rescue. Yeah. Well. Well, it's very clever, but it's just I think it's sad that it's come to this. But, you know, if, if there's a problem, you leave it to an engineer to find a solution, I guess. Yeah, well, I suppose the alternatives are we just let populations die out oh, or we say, okay, let's work out a solution. Latest sales figures for worldwide PC shipments are just in. Uh, the market leader for April during quarter of 2021 was... Another drum roll, don't we? I yeah, need to get a drum roll bit of sound effect here somewhere. have to work out how I can do that, Mum. I actually go some numbers first before we hit the actual market leader. And these are numbers that absolutely blow me away. 82.3 million computers, that's including desktops and notebooks, not tablets, mm -hmm. desktops and notebooks were sold in the last quarter of 2021 financial year or the second quarter of this year, if you like. So Sorry, April to June. How many did you say? 82.3 million. Oh, that's a lot. Now, a the two years ago, if you go back and looked at the predictions that were occurring for the PC market, it was in decline. Tablets were seen as convenient, were doing most of the things that a PC could do, maybe not all of the things a PC could do, but they were so convenient that that market was exploding and the PC, the desktop PC and the notebook PC market were in decline. A little thing called a pandemic came along and suddenly people needed to be able to work from home and they needed to upgrade their hardware. So that saw a huge increase in sales over the pandemic. But even now, looking at that particular quarter, so April to June this year, compared to April to June last year when the pandemic was first hitting and those sales were exploding, we still see or still saw a 13% increase on those sales year on year. So mm. that market that we thought was declining is now growing. Number one in terms of market share was Lenovo. Now Lenovo is the spin-off of the old IBM brand. I'm going back a few years now. Lenovo was born of IBM saying, we don't want to be in the PC market anymore. We just want to be in the server market. So Lenovo was born. They had a 24.3% market share. HP was second, 22.6, so not too far away. Dell was third, 17%. Then it drops down a long way to Apple, 7.8%. Acer at 7.3%. Significant numbers there, and good on Lenovo. They've been at the top for some time, for, for many years now. The other thing I find really interesting, and I can remember 
when I first sold my first ever notebook, it was a very exciting day. Notebooks back in the days that I'm talking about now were mono screen, were incredibly heavy, were very low powered. I think it was a 386 that was the yeah, processor I in there. The 386. Very low powered PCs. That was exciting for me. Oh, I sold one notebook. Wow, I can hardly wait till I can save up enough to get my own notebook. <laughs> What's really interesting from that perspective is that. For a long time, notebooks were a very small portion of the sales of the overall PC market. Now it's at the point that the minority sales are desktop machines. The majority sales are actually notebooks. So it's kind of turned that whole way around as notebooks have gotten to the point now where they're basically the preferred option. So of the 82.3 million units sold, 66.7 of those were notebooks. And, yeah, and obviously the right. remaining ones were just desktop PCs. So 15.6 million were desktops. That's a huge change from where it was even, say, 10 years ago when notebook sales were still in the minority. So the day of the notebook is still well and truly with us. Absolutely right. Yeah. And it is. I've, I find even myself, James, I use a tablet, I use a notebook, and there are sometimes when I'm using my tablet, I go, you know what, just that little extra thing I want to do, I'm going to wait till I'm sitting in front of a PC because it's just that bit easier. Sometimes you can do most things on a tablet, mm. but it's still nice to have that bit of extra power, some of the extra programs you can use. It's just nice to have a full-blown PC there sometimes. Well, I'm a semi-Luddite. I've got to have my screen and my keyboard all arranged uh, as they are. And no, as you say, notebook's got the power for what I need. Yeah. I'm still yet to convert to a tablet, I've got to say. <laughs> uh, we'll get you there, James. Yeah, we'll get there eventually. <laughs> and on that note, people, it's time to pack up stumps and sign off the scores sheet for another week. It's been another cracker today, mate. Thanks, Matt, for that. And remember, when you listen to this, subscribe, like, review. We love to see those reviews come through. We like to see people giving it five stars, hopefully. But subscribe. Keep subscribing. Keep telling your friends about it. We're still going well, James, in our numbers. It's great to see more people getting access to this sort of information. You've been listening today to Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. I'm your host, James Eddy, and we look forward to catching you once again next week.